Hey, hi, hello, how are you? And welcome back to Watch It Again, the podcast where we go through 101 movies to see before you die. As always, I'm your host, Jacob, and with me are... I'm Kat. I'm Nick. <laughs> I didn't think he was going to say it, that he's not paying attention. <laughs> like, is Nick here? <laughs> yes, yeah, so Nick is here, here this week, and uh, James is not, but uh, Kat, what's this podcast, wow, all about? <laughs> so each week we take it in turns um, to pick a movie off a list um, of 101 movies you should see before you die, and we all watch it, and then whoever picked that movie writes a report and then tells everyone else on the podcast all about it. Um, and then, yeah, we talk about yeah. a bit, talk about, um, what we've been watching and yeah, it's just a fun time, just a conversation between friends. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> this week it is my turn to give a report. Um, and we are doing the Red Shoes from 1948. So, mm-hmm. uh, and you both obviously watched this film indeed i did i hope i did well i'm glad i also did and we're starting late to our scheduled time because i literally just finished watching it (laughs) so yay um it was directed by michael powell and emmerich pressburger who take both co-writing and co-directing credits even though one of them did the directing and one of them did the writing but they were a team so Mm, i guess i like that hmm um, I love. might go, I think, maybe plot and then talk about it a bit. You reckon? Sounds good. Uh-huh. All right. So, quick sort of synopsis, not too big, and then we'll talk about the movie a bit more. Um, so, based on a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale about a pair of enchanted crimson ballet slippers, The Red Shoes follows the beautiful Vicky Page, a young solicitor who... So sorry, socialite who loves ballet. <laughs> I was going to say, solicit it. Does it make sense? Um, the rising composer Julian Cruster, whom she loves, and her dictor- dictatorial director Boris Lomontov, who's a bit of a prick. Um, He's an ass. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> After attracting the attention of the famous director and earning respect and admiration from her colleagues, Vicky is promised by Lamontov that you shall dance and the world shall follow, but only on the agreement that she will dance and he will control everything else. On this basis, Vicky rises to fame as the prima ballerina in a world-class ballet company. However, Lamontov discusses the romance, discovers the romance between his talented composer and his beautiful protégé. After he cruelly dictates that Vicky must give up Julian or the dancing, he is shocked and hurt when she marries Julian and leaves the company, but remains convinced that she will return to him. Vicky does miss her dancing, and when she is offered a chance to dance the Red Shoes show once more, she attempts to resist, but eventually gives in to Lamontov's alternate bullying and coaxing. Julian is in London preparing for the premiere of Sorry, his new- coaxing? What? What is coaxing? I don't know, but that's what coercing? the synopsis says, so... Is it coercing? No, it's C-O-A-X-I. Coaxing? Yeah, that would probably make more sense. <laughs> I always said coaxing because it's not like coaxial cable, and that's how my brain worked. But anyway. <laughs> um, so, 
Julian is in London preparing for the premiere of his new work, Cupid and the Psych, and discovers that his wife has been uh, convinced back into dancing with the Lamontov Ballet. He is furious, as it appears that Lamontov has convinced her to leave him, and he chases after her, arriving as she prepares to dance the Red Shoes Ballet. Disheveled and disbelieving in her dressing room, uh, shortly before the performance, she explains that she has missed her dancing and embraces him, trying to convey worldliness that she did not want to leave him, but Lamontov enters and crow- um, crows his victory over Julian, reinforcing Vicky's apparent betrayal until Julian gives an ultimatum, dancing or their marriage. Mm. Vicky is so distressed at the rapidly escalating tension and the competition the two crucial men in her life that she... Um, can only cry brokenheartedly, seemingly unable to contemplate losing either part of her life. Lamontov takes this as victory and gloats, causing Julian to leave, telling her he is not coming back. Lamontov confronts a little, comforts her a little, promising from now onwards you will dance like never before. He then leaves to introduce the show. Vicky, completely distraught, commits suicide by throwing herself off a balcony in front of a train that Julian was about to catch. Or does she? Was it the shoes? Julian cradles her crushed body and obeys her final request. Take (laughs) off the red shoes. Lamontov, obviously shaken, knowing he's part of the tragedy, announces that Vicky will never dance again, but they will perform the ballet once more without her because we think that she would have um, wished it. A lone spotlight will take the place of Vicky on stage, but no understudy will actually dance the role. A ghostly ballet follows, showing the parallels between Vicky and the little girl, Karen, of the fairy tale, and showing the regret and loss of the entire company, but also pointing out that life rushes by and the red shoes dance on. Mm. So that's roughly... Very, um... Very dark towards the end there. Very. It, the, the, the movie does kind of take a while to get going into what its main... Because I feel like most of what I just said happens in about the last 40, 30 minutes. Yeah. And kind of a mm. lot of stuff happens before that. Because the movie goes for just over two hours. Um, so it was a, it is a British dance film that was released in 1948 based on the Hans Christensen Anderson fairy tale of the same type title, although it was not immediately acclaimed on its release. The movie grew in stature and today is widely considered the best film about the world of dance. Wow. Um, How long ago was that um, opinion published? Because there's been quite a few come out since then. Look, there's no date on when this was this this was written, but fun. It was last modified on April 8th, 2020. This article. Mm. So, the Anderson fairy tale is a bit more morbid than the ballet that that they base on in the movie. Um, They always are. Those fairy tales are horrible. Just wait. Listen to this. (laughs) The Anderson story is a morbid fairy tale about a ballerina who 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 shoes force her to dance to the point of death. She is saved only by having her feet cut off. Oh. Jesus. That's, yeah, so she wishes 
for shoe, you know, ball- ballet shoes that she can dance in, you know. And this <coughs> shoemaker gives her these shoes that are, happen to be cursed, and she puts them on and dances her ballet show, and then she can't stop dancing, and she gets tired, but the shoes aren't tired, so she dances out onto the street and continues to dance until she physically can't dance anymore, but the shoes make her, and then someone cuts her feet off. Fuck. Because they can't get the shoes off, so, you know, a little bit fucked. That's freaky. To say the least, yeah. Just a little bit. So... The film traces a love triangle between ballerina Victoria Page, who's played by um, Moira Shira, who was actually a ballerina at the time. And this was the first movie she acted in. And mm. when she went back to... She went straight back to the ballet afterwards. So oh, she, okay. Yeah, so she went returned to the ballet after starring in this, but I'll come back to a bit more on that later. Um... Then it's so it's between her, her art and her love for you know, for what's his name, bloody the guy, <laughs> yeah, um, fucking Jesus, my brain just had it. What's the character's name? I think I don't. I couldn't even tell you. I only know mm. that her name is Vicky. Um, anyway, yeah. Anyway. Doesn't matter. We'll get there. Um, so, Was it Julian? What? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So, why are red shoes so fascinating? What movie do red shoes play a prominent role around the, the Wizard of time? Oz? Yeah. So, mm. the red shoes. But shoe- in the books, they were silver. Yeah, but I'm, I'm just listen. In the book, the Wizard the, of Oz? Yeah. Mm. I was going to say, like, both. I was like, well, actually not. Um, so the red shoe is a source of fascination, power, and mystery to both the wearer and the beholder. The use of red shoe as a mark of distinction can be seen throughout history across different cultures, but is particularly pronounced in the French courts. Huh. Um, during Louis XIV's reign, the court um, both style and etiquette of those who were courtiers to distinguish themselves from other aristocrats would wear red shoes. Um, Red shoes are uh, fabled holding a place in both mythology and pop culture. In Hans Christian Andersen's Fairy Tale, The Red Shoes, which was written in 1845, the vain heroine Karen is driven to dance by a pair of bewitched red shoes, which hound her until she escapes into the afterlife. This uh, morality tale has reemerged most notably in the Technicolor film masterpiece, The Red Shoes, which is what we are talking about now. Uh, the mm-hmm. flame-haired ballerina Victoria Page dances a ballet based on the fairy tale in a pair of crimson slippers. This st- story within a story is a uh, parable for the film's larger themes, which explores the conflict between love and art. Like Karen's Red Shoes, Vicky's slippers never tire. Time rushes by, love rushes by, life rushes by, but the shoes dance on. In the world of the film, Victoria's love for dance leads to her destruction, much like in the fairy tale. Mm. Um, the ability of red shoes to transform their wearer was given a bewitching spin when Dorothy donned a pair of red slippers in MGM's The Wizard of Oz in 1939. 
Costuma Gilbert Adrian's glittering creation featured 2,300 sequins hand-sewn into red silk. The shoe's surface allure is matched by their depth of meaning. Theories abound as to their Freudian and sacred profane symbolism. It's amazing, (laughs) isn't it? There's a lot happening in that paragraph. (laughs) In that sentence? (laughs) (laughs) Just everything. Um, Red shoes have significant power throughout history. They have been worn by superheroes and members of the military, royalty and potency. Also, this is an extract from the Australian Ballet, just about red shoes. Just... (laughs) Which I thought was really okay. interesting to include when talking about red shoes of why they're so important. Yeah. Um, most recently, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth revived the tradition of wearing ruby red papal shoes as a practice which arose around the Roman Empire. The colour red being associated with the blood of the Matrodom, the Prada Pope, as he was named by the media for his designer tastes favours red leather loafers while the devil may wear Prada, the Pope tastes a more um, chast. Ch- 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 I can't even say it. It's like the devil oh, wears Prada. It's just so funny. <laughs> I made my... Yeah. Um, so but while the devil wears Prada, the Pope tastes a more chaste. His shoes are reportedly made by Italian shoemaker Adriano Stefanelli. He's some famous, I don't know, designer dude. Um, so there's just... The gist of it is that a lot of... Red shoes crop up in a lot of different Yeah, a lot of different places in religion and mythology and different meanings that red shoes are always this kind of key item. Powerful entity. Mm. Yes, like Superman's red boots. You know, it's Mm. just an important thing that red shoes kind of have this symbolism as to, you know, power and... In this case, bad, cursed red shoes that make you dance to death. Yeah. Um, Very interesting. Yes. So, in the movie... When was the... the, Oh, sorry. Do you know when the original um, Hans Christian Andersen story was published? 1845. Oh, okay, wow. So, almost a century before the movie. Yeah. Um... So in the movie, there is tension between two kinds of stories. That tension helps make uh, the most popular movie ever made about the ballet and one of the most enigmatic movies about anything. One story um, could be a Hollywood musical. A young ballerina falls in love with the composer of the ballet that makes her an overnight star. The other story is darker and more guarded. It involves the impresario who runs the ballet company, who demands loyalty and obedience, who is enraged when the young people get married, the motives of the ballerina and her lover are transparent. But the impresario defies analysis. In his dark eyes, um, we read a fierce resentment. Not only is it jealousy, at least not romantic, nothing as simple as that. So it's built on that there, there is two stories that happen within this film and they kind of split but running simultaneously that the owner of the ballet company is so demanding of everyone involved that it's his way or the highway and the previous star she goes off and gets married and he fires her so when he finds out Mm -hmm. that his new star and his new star composer get married he fires them because you either just mean because you either marry to the job or you leave. 
and he says, you know, you can dance. No one that ever, like, you know, if you don't love dance completely, you will never be the best dancer. So he's like, you're committed to being in the ballet, and if you get married, you're no longer committed to the ballet. Mm. So it's a really weird, like, hard line that he has with everyone on set. And you see it, like, throughout the whole thing. He's very enigmatic, I suppose, in a sense, that he's this mysterious, like, everyone kind of knows how he is in his ways, but he's still kind of this mysterious higher figure over everyone. Yeah. Like, he's separate. Like, you know, when she first comes to the ballet, he's... She goes, oh, I know him personally, and she goes to say hi to him, and he just walks straight past. Ignores her completely, like he just Mm. doesn't care. Mm. And one of the people on stage, you know, oh, yeah, you can go over to the corner, and there's five other women that he's extended his invite to today. Mm. They're all over there. And it's just... He's just on a different level to everyone else. It's a very interesting character. Um, Mm. So the Red Shoes was made in 1948 by the team of Michael Powell and Emmerich... Pressburger, British filmmakers as respected as Hitchcock, supposedly in England. I don't know. Um, Powell was the director and Pressburger, a Hungarian immigrant, was the writer. But they always took double credits as writer-directors and they were known as the Archers. Their logo was an arrow hitting its target, announcing such masterpieces as The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, Black Narcissus, Peeping Tom, The Thief of Baghdad, and A Matter of Life and Death. Um, the David Newton classic that was played in America as Stairway to Heaven. Um, huh. Pressburger had written a da- draft for a ballet film in the 1930s and after the war, after their enormous success with Black Narcissus in 1947, which made a star of Deborah Kerr and won Oscars for t- cinematography and art direction, they had another look at it. Powell had grown up on the French Riviera. His British father ran a hotel on Cape Farrar and he often saw the Russian impresario. Um, how am I going to? How how is am I going to pronounce this Russian name? <laughs> <laughs> Give it your best shot. Diaghilev. It's D I A G H I L E V. Oh God! I, I'd have to like see the words, like yeah, the letters next to each other to get it. <laughs> it is. You've, you've just said gibberish to me. Yeah. Huh? It's, um. Anyway. So his ballets... Anyway, um, Vladimir. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> so um, this Russian impresario um, ballet ruses wintered nearby in Monte Carlo from where um, they grew up, where Powell had grown up. Um, the archers used Powell's notions about Diaghilev. It's definitely wrong. And um, the earlier script to create the story of a proud, cold, distant impresario who meets his match with a fiery ballerina. Pressburger may have been inspired by a famous scandal in 1913 when Diaghilev's um, great but tortured star Voslav Dijinsky, that one I can say because that one's a lot easier to read, um, <laughs> married the Hungarian ballerina Romala D. Poliski. He fired them both. Wow, what oh. a coincidence. Oh. <laughs> I want you know, life definitely got the inspiration from there like they said it's like if this happened so we're just going to put it in our movie um <laughs> it's just so, convenient i know it's just like oh there's this guy that i used to see his ballets near where i grew up and his stars did this and he fired them and i wrote a movie about a ballet so i'm going to include that just 
you know, easy life events. Just tell it like it is. <laughs> it's more believable if it's actually already happened. Um, so casting is everything when the characters must move between realism and fantasy. The Red Shoes might have failed without um, Maura Shear and Elton Warbrook as the stars. Shearer and Warbrook have distinctive, even idiosyncra- idiosyncratic personalities. Idiosyncratic. Thank you. Sorry. Um, and I they bring you it- struggling. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they bring an emotional realism to characters who are really, after all, only stereotypes. Walbrook praise Boris Lamontov, the imperious manager of a ballet Lamontov, a company ruled by his iron will. He is arrogant, curt, unbending, able to charm, and able to chill. It rhymes. Um, Shearer plays da- dancer Victoria Page, whose friend Julian Craster um, bursts into Lamontov's office to complain that his composition has ne- has been stolen by the company's conductor. Julian is hired by Lamontov. Vicky wins an audition, and when the company's lead dancer resigns to get married, they are told, we have three weeks to create a ballet out of nothing. Moira Shearer, let it be said, um... Where are we? Uh, I just scrolled and an ad popped up and I've lost my pay, my spot. Um, is this still from the Australian Ballet? Or no, so I've, 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 moved, I've moved on to Roger Ebert now. My, oh, my good friend. and a great friend. Yes, he's very helpful in a lot of our movies and getting <laughs> good information. Um, so Powell wrote in his autobiography, which, looking back at it, is not really what you how you describe someone. I'm going to read it, but I just want to give context of this is Powell, one of the co-creators that is saying this. Not me. Okay. So, quotation. Moira Shira, let it be said, is the is a great beauty. Her cloud of red hair, as natural and beautiful as any animal's, flamed and glittered like an autumn bonfire. She had a magnificent body. She wasn't slim. She just didn't have an ounce of super um, flesh. So, yeah, bit of a weird thing to say. Right. Um, mm. Of Anton, he wrote, um, of Walbrook. Um, Anton conceals his humility and his um, warm heart behind perfect manners that shield him like a suit of armour. He responds to clothing like the chameleon that changes shape and colour out of sympathy with its surroundings. A much more respectable, nice thing to say about someone. I'm assuming because that was, you know, saying it about a man compared to a, about a woman. Mm. But yeah, um... You could get away with a lot more back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Wait, did he say that she wasn't slim or something? He said she wasn't slim. She just didn't have an ounce of um, super flawless flesh. So, like, ec- there was no extra flesh on her. She wasn't slim, but she wasn't fat. She was the perfect she- shape. She is literally the tiniest person I have ever seen in a movie. She, (laughs) the scene where she's standing and like waiting for him to come to the train so she can talk to him, and her like cinched waist. I looked at that and I was like, "That is the size of my arm." If she turned sideways, she would be invisible. Yes, (laughs) like I think you could tie a rope to her and fly her like a kite. Probably, like she's the small. She's just 
it's just tiny. Um. Uh, God. So Shira was twenty-one when she was cast. Um. She was with the Sadler Wells Company, dancing in the shadow of a young Margaret Fonantaine, who I'm assuming is some famous ballet star. Um, she didn't her. take the movie too seriously. Um, it took a year to her to agree to star in The Red Shoes and went back to the ballet afterwards and possibly never knew how good she was in the movie, how powerful she related to the camera. Um, Powell told his studio owner, I never knew what a natural was before her, but I do now. It's Moira Shearer. So she'd huh. never acted in a movie before and she went straight back to the ballet afterwards and everyone was just shocked at how naturally she performed in front of the camera. She does have a very, mm. um, like, the presence on screen is, like, you are just drawn yeah. to her. Yeah. And, like, she delivers a lines well. She conveys emotion well. Like, it, it is surprising that she had never been in anything before this. Like, she was a dancer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, that makes sense because I was, I was like looking her up before this and like her last two acting gigs are like 20 years apart or something. Yeah. Like yeah. her last thing was like in the 80s and before that it was something in like, yeah, 1960 something. Yeah. So that makes sense. She would have just done a dancing thing, I guess. Yeah. But I don't know. Had a more focus uh, on that. If she could by a certain age, I don't know. I don't know how old. Ballerinas continue for, but not a clue. Old. I guess as long as you can still dance, you can. As long as your legs work, I guess. Don't know. Mm-hmm. Um. So there's a very important sequence in cinematic history within this film. I think I know se- what you're talking about. Goes for mm-hmm. 17 minutes. There is a full ballet sequence which crosses the borders between reality and fantasy and we end up in vast different um I suppose you could say landscapes? Yeah, landscapes so um it took six weeks to film um that sequence alone and it provides um, proved very difficult for a lot of the backup dancers. I'll start with. Um, so obviously, all the backup dancers were members of the ballet, and found it very difficult that they would spend hours preparing for a certain shot that would last a couple of seconds, and never really spent anywhere near a, even a minute dancing at one time, because it was all oh, crafted. Wow. It was all shot. Every shot was set up to capture a specific moment. That they never really, they didn't, in the whole take, they never really danced through the whole thing as one on camera. Mm-hmm. So they found it very weird. So they're like, okay, we're doing this bit. Like, we're jumping in at this bar at this beat, and you're going to do 20 seconds of that, and then we're going to stop, and then you're going to do that again from this, like, you know, how it was set up. Uh, yeah. So it's it was a very, beautiful sequence, though. Yeah. It's, um, It uses over 120 paintings in the sequence, wow. um, all painted by Hein Heckroth, 
and the dancing newspaper was all wire work. That's great. But what also means that there's a lot of kind of really, really early visual effects in this film. Mm. And it's all done at this just insane level because obviously it's 1948, 47, 48 when it's being filmed. So you don't have any computers. You don't have even the stuff when you get like further along. Even when you get to like the 60s and 70s, there's more high-tech ways of doing visual effects in a movie. In mm. this, it's all done on different plates that you're cutting holes in film and you're filming multiple different plates of the same thing to then superimpose all of them together to make them happen. So when she's falling through the sky, when she's, you know, running from painting to painting, there was thousands of hours of people cutting out film and sticking it on top of other film and cutting holes in it to put behind so that all those colours could come through and she could run through the different worlds and or dance through the different worlds, I should say. And mm. it's just mind-blowing the precision of all... None of it looks bad. No, it's incredible. Like, it's all practical in-camera stuff because there's no other way of doing it. Every single shot in this film is done through a camera and some of them are just amazing. That's great. Like, it's just an unreal level of colour and detail in these backgrounds and foregrounds that they've Mm. managed to capture. I think that sequence especially was when I was like, oh, it's like the Wizard of Oz. Like, mm. Which was like how... 10 years before. Right. Because the Wizard of Oz was like 30, 39? Something, yeah, 30s, I think. Yeah, something like that. Um, I think... Yeah, 1939. Like... Cat? Um... I think by far that was my favourite part of the movie. Yeah. The whole, like, I enjoyed that it wasn't... Because I think you get that a lot these days where if, for instance, some characters are watching a movie or they are watching, like, the theatre or something, you'll get chopped and changed, like, bits and pieces of it. Does that make yeah. sense? Whereas yeah, this, you won't you get, get to witness to, the full thing. Yeah, you're, it's like you're just there and you're sitting there. And because she is such a wonderful actress and such a wonderful dancer. Like, it's all just so captivating, I think. Yeah, it... And it inspired a lot of other movies, such as An American in Paris and Singing in the Rain, to have extended dance sequences and stuff in them. But this was Mm. the first to ever do it. And it's an uninterrupted 17-minute block in the middle of the film in which she performs... The red shoes, and it's done so well. It it really bridges the okay. This is based on a fairy tale, so yes, the people in the theater, what like within the movie, like you know, watching her do this dance, are just seeing her on the stage. But us as the audience of the film can see the fairy tale that she is entering, and the different mm. you know the fantasy world in which she is dancing in in the purpose of the story. Mm. And yeah, I, I kind of, it was amazing to see it. 
that kind yeah. of takes you into this fa- fairy tale. Uh, I wasn't expecting the level that it went into of what it was. I was like, this is amazing. I um yeah, I was definitely because I had kind of picked up on the gist of what it was about, like because I googled it beforehand and read a couple of things. But I think to have, like, I guess the life, like the real life of the movie reflected in the story presented on the stage mm. was really interesting too. So the cinematographer, Jack Cardiff, very British name, um, <laughs> he manipulated the camera speed to make it seem like the dancers would linger at the top of their jump, so to hold them there for just that tiniest little bit longer uh. as they were dancing, just to kind of add to that, you know, motion of dance. Um, mm. He's the art direction for this film won an Oscar as well as for original score. So it won two Oscars. Beautiful, um, as it should have. <laughs> mostly because of that 17-minute scene. Mm. Like, that was what it was. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Editing, and Screenplay, but didn't win any of them. But pretty much that 17-minute scene is what has encapsulated it as this great movie of dance and why it's such an important yeah. movie in the sense of ballet that it shows like you know it's this fantasy sequence that we get um yeah so then obviously towards the end of the movie she jumps in front of a train which I touched on um alright trivia time <laughs> here we go here we go so you guys get to decide fun fact sad fact or uh, fact. Uh, <laughs> start sad. Bring us up at the end. I'm 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 just gonna pick ones and yeah. Oh, okay. And we have to decide what they are. Yeah, you have to decide if they're fun they're... or sad. Oh right. You guys oh, are deciding. So I'm okay. gonna tell you a fact, and then you tell me if it's a fun fact or sad fact. Oh god. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, Technicolor founders Herbert T. Kalmus and Natalie Kalmus considered this film the best example of three stripe Technicolor. During the filming, however, Natalie often complained that Jack Cardiff wasn't following the rules laid down for Technicolor films and demanded that they reshoot various scenes. However, Michael Powell always backed up Cardiff and they got the film they wanted. Hmm. So I the invent- that, that's fun, I, I guess. Yeah, I guess like the inventors of Technicolor were like, you're not allowed to do that, and their production just went, no, fuck you, we do what we want. <laughs> yeah, more yeah. production should do that. I think it's fun. Um, that's, okay. Um, when Ludovic Kennedy saw Moira Shearer in this film, he said that he instantly knew, um, he knew instantly that she was the girl he would marry. He actively sought oh. her out and married her two years oh. later in February 1950 in a chapel royal in London's Hampton Court Palace. That's I a creepy that. that's, fact. That, that's... <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that. You can't just look at someone and go, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> Why not? 
Because well, it's clearly like, he did. I mean, he did, and she, he obviously went and met her, and then she obviously liked him. So, oh, okay. Well, that's okay. He didn't just go and that's kidnap nice her like we're then. getting married. Like he didn't. Sorry, <laughs> the way you read it, I was Look at this like, fucking he... creep. <laughs> I mean, he obviously just saw the movie and went, "I want to marry Asked that one." Asked girl. Yeah. I just think no one should get together. No one should be married or pursue anyone. Uh, uh-oh. Um, no, that's a nice fact. That's a sweet fact. All right, if it was all done properly. Above board? Above board. All right, here's another one for you. This is one of director Martin Scorsese's favourite films. And he owns a large collection of memorabilia related to it, including a pair of red slippers signed by Moira Shearer, a copy of the screenplay signed by directors Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, an original set of storyboards, um, which were gifted by the uh, late Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts, and several movie Mm -hmm. posters from around the world. Scorsese's collection of memorabilia can be viewed on the Criterion Collections DVD Slash Blu-ray release of the movie. There's a little tour of it all. Uh, Final that's sad. That's an interesting fact. Yeah. Okay. I heard he was a um, a big proponent of um, restoring the red shoes because, like, this was like just as it was like coming to like prominence, like restoring mm-hmm. old movies and making sure they're actually like really protected. Because like Which, beforehand yeah, the- they were. I assume you have something written about that, but like, well, that's just what the, the whole past, Criterion it, it, collection is. It's their well, yeah, work to restore everything. Yeah, yeah, but like this especially, like, since like it's so vibrant and there's so many different yeah. colors everywhere. This is like the most fucks. Like, yeah, it's in really, it's in its in really terms of like hard being faded and like, process to restore that film too. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. touched on it in something else. Another movie, old movie we talked about, and how hard it was to restore the film. But I can't yeah. remember which one it was. I watched a video about it. Um, yeah. There was something else. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, we have I, spoken about it. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, this is not good podcast content, no. guys. <laughs> <laughs> budget. Film oh, budget. Yes. I haven't touched on it. Written down in front of me. So... It was made in 1948 at a budget of £551,927. Okay. Right? Well, the equivalent in 1948 of £1,379,699 Australian dollars. Wow. So it had a budget of over, you know, $1.3 million Australian dollars in 1948. A lot of money was spent on this. The equivalent mm-hmm. to that now, since James isn't here, I've got it written down. The equivalent would be today would be a budget of twenty million five hundred and eighty-five thousand pounds, or thirty-eight million seven hundred and forty-two thousand Australian dollars. Whoa. So it's Good essentially man. it's a forty That's million a dollar like movie, like it a huge budget. But when you think about it, one they were shooting in Technicolor in nineteen forty-eight, so that was a cost on its own. Mm. It ran. 15 weeks over schedule, in which caused both um, Powell and Pressburger to cop a 10% reduction in their salaries. Sorry, not 10%, $10,000 reduction in their salaries. Um, Jeez. And they had to build every single one of those ballet sets. Oh, 
they had to pay that orchestra for every day that they were on set and had to pay a whole ballet troupe for every day that they were on set. Shit. So they spent a lot of money on this film, but it was worth it. Um... On the first day of shooting, Moira Shearer got badly sunburnt and developed a blister on her back. Later in production, Ooh. she wrenched her neck quite badly when called to leap from a window and received a scratch that turned into an abscess. Shearer would often find herself being suspended in a harness for up to eight hours while being um, buff- well, blasted by wind machines. Oh my god, that sounds horrible. So fun fact or sad fact? Sad. Sad. Horrible fact. (laughs) Um, Hein Heckroth's involvement, so this was our painter, Mm. as production designer marks the first time that a painter was hired to supervise the look of a motion picture. Oh, there you go. Um, What else we got? Um... I touched on the dancers floating with the manipulation of the camera speed. Yeah, so the, the film went massively over budget and the rank company, which financed it and was uh, and released it, had little faith of its commercial potential. It tried to bury the film by not giving it a premiere. Um, backer J. Arthur Rank walked out of its first performance and by um, just letting it quietly show at late screenings at a cinema in London... Rank wasn't even prepared to strike um, a print for the American market. Slowly, however, audiences started to pick up on the film and Rank realised that it might have uh, potential to be a breakout hit after all. Indeed, when the initial print was made for the US, it played at an off-Broadway theatre for an unprecedented 110 weeks straight. There was, this was enough shit. to convince Universal to take up distribution rights for the US, which it did in 1951. Over two years. And that, that was just at one theatre in Broadway it ran for, a, oh, just That's off Broadway crazy. for 110 weeks. And then it got a theatrical release right across the US in 1951. That's wild. You yeah. wouldn't hear of that today. A movie oh. being made three then, years ago, only really being released after today. being played in one theater for two years straight. Yeah, like, like that's a, a movie slow from twenty eighteen. Yeah, coming out today. Oh, to be fair, that's not too far off. Currently, very pre-COVID. Well, world. yeah, so yeah. Much, we could see each other. We could have. Yeah. <laughs> um, See you guys in three years. Yeah. <laughs> How many more facts have you got, Jacob? Well, Nick kind of touched, like we'll touch on it. A restored print was made by Martin Scorsese's Film Foundation and the UCLA Film and Television Archive. After many years' work, the restorers went right back to the original negatives, digitally repairing any scratches and misalignment. The restored print was shown at um, the Keynes Film Festival in 2009 to great acclaim and was subsequently shown theatrically as well as being made onto the Criterion Collections DVD and Blu-ray releases. Um, Lovely. Yeah, that's pretty much all 
my facts, I think. Nice. Imagine having to go through a reel of film, like, frame by frame, and having, like, thick scratches and shit. Yeah. Fuck that. I don't even know how <laughs> to hysterical. do that. I was, like, watching videos. It, it it's looks insane. like the worst job in the world. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's just, like, the, they fix the negatives. It's just... It's yeah, no, oh. no, thank you. But also, thank you to them for doing that. Yeah. Excuse me. So, do either of you have any more thoughts that you would like to add? Um, not really. I think I just really enjoyed it. Nick, yeah. do you have anything else? Not really. I- I'm glad they were able to um, salvage it and, like, yeah. recover it. Because yeah. apparently it was quite common for, like, a lot of films, like, pre-1950 to just be gone. And that's it. Yeah. So it's good that something like this is, like, stuck around. All right, so my first question is, Kat, would you watch this film again? Maybe. I don't, I don't want to say a hard <laughs> no, but I don't want to say a hard yes. I'm, I'm on the fence. On the fence. I, Nick, I think I'd watch the 17-minute ballet sequence again, honestly. Nick, are we, are, do we allow on the fence sitting here? No. I just want to watch the 17 minutes. That's not how internet opinions work. You've got to either be completely... I'm making my own rules here. We could just be like, what you said, I'd watch it again if someone else wanted to watch it. I'd watch it again if I was in the mood to watch a 17-minute ballet montage. Followed by an hour of other story either side. I'd just skip all that. Oh, I guess we can. I'm like making that. up my own rules, boys. <sighs> Nick? Well, I'd say I would watch it again if I want to watch the yeah, the seventeen minute <laughs> sequence, but I know there's no there's no situation where I would watch that, so I'm gonna say no. Like <laughs> Yeah, look all right. I'm also going to say no. But as I said, if someone else on the topic of you know old films and watching things, if someone else wanted to watch it, I would not. I wouldn't like get up and like, no, we're not watching that and leave. I'd be like, yeah, we can watch this film, appreciate it, and talk about it. You're a pretty shit friend yeah. if your friends are like, oh, let's watch this, and you go, no, nah, I'm fucking going. Yeah, I'm fucking <laughs> out of here. Literally leave. Dogs and just get in my car and drive away. God, that check that sucks. <laughs> what a prick. Just fucking left. <laughs> uh, um. Yeah, okay, so Kat, do you want to lead us into our next segment? Yeah, so now we go into what we've been watching and what we're excited for. And generally, we talk about the last week ish um, or since we've been, um, since we last recorded the podcast. Um, so for us, that was only actually a couple of days ago. So I'm not sure how much the boys will have to offer. But yeah, I've got who a wants bit. to go oh, first? Yeah. Okay, um, Nick, you can go first then. Um, I should have asked you before we started recording, but did you just talk about Spider-Man last week? We did not. Did you we? did not. Well, no, well, we talked that's... about Jacob's um, Spider-Man, new Spider-Man comic. Yeah. Right. And you didn't talk about the trailer that came out like, the day before. <sighs> well, we just we knew how much he loved it. Yeah. We just right. you. Ah, uh, well, well, that's so something I'm got... really looking forward to. <laughs> Yeah, um, I I saw the trailer for No Way Home like the like when it leaked. So yeah, so did I. So did I. Yeah, so, so I was really. Before. Yeah, well, I wasn't. I don't know. It, it didn't really blow me away because it's just kind of. Um, well, like, I was blown best, away. It wasn't all, the best quality in the leak. 
No, well, just the trailer in general, because it's it was just all stuff that they haven't really confirmed for, like, a year. Like, we've got a video about it. Like, it's just... I don't know. A, a lot of the rumours are kind of losing their wind, I think. Yeah, but some of the rumours came... Turned out to be true, so... Yeah. Yeah. I don't but know. yeah, like, uh, oh, actually, I was surprised that, like, Willem Dafoe is a thing. Like, I love he, it. Willem Dafoe's I, I great. Because I, I think I said, I, like, definitely said he won't be in it. Well, I'm pretty sure he so, will, because he laughs yeah, in the trailer. Yeah, that's his laugh. Yeah. I would dare say Willem Dafoe-nally in it. Ha, ha, I'm excited. That was the That's all my feelings towards it. I genuinely think it's going to be fantastic. Like it, we're getting live action Spider Verse. That's what's happening. Uh, mm. yeah, I, I'm sort of holding in my like expectations. That's just kind of what I do for stuff I'm really looking forward yeah. to now. Because uh, no, I, I'd hate for it to come out and expect too much, which I feel like is going to happen still. Like even yeah. though a lot of the Rumours are being confirmed. I don't know. You know, fair. You just don't um, want to let yourself feel anything, Nick. We get it. You don't want to be vulnerable and open <laughs> towards Spider-Man. Yes, and that, that's that, so that, fine. That's exactly, that's exactly right. <laughs> Damn, Peter Parker will get you killed. Um, anything Have you else? been watching anything else? No. I, I watched the first three episodes of What If. Oh, have I? Cat. Oh, that's um what I need to watch. It's I very just, good. I, I watch Loki, okay, so get off my back. Right. <laughs> Nick, are you well, enjoying okay. it? Pardon? I, said, like, oh, I really I, I really enjoyed the third episode. Yeah. But I I don't know, it just hasn't grabbed me. I really enjoyed the second like I think the second <laughs> one was just craziness and I loved every second of it. But I, I just think I, it's a little like i really enjoy it because i've read like i really enjoyed the what if comic mm. series that seeing like this them have a like, creative what like you know what if this happened i just i don't know i've really enjoyed all three i i like i've got to like uh, i think that the idea of getting all the actors back for the most part to like mm-hmm. voice their characters as good but for a lot of them it just doesn't work because it's such a different talent voice acting and um, i feel like in every episode so far i've like had a couple actors where i'm like oh that's that's pretty rough like i will say that samuel l jackson is really good at like his voice acting comes across really well but then when you're that yeah. charismatic it's not hard like he just it his lines in episode three just every single one lands so well. Yeah, but <laughs> even like yeah, Samuel L. Jackson. Also, the I don't know personally. Obviously, this is a preferential thing. Yeah, but I think the the animation is dog shit. Yeah, the animation style is odd. It it's definitely could so, have been better. It's so like like it, it, I feel like I'm just looking at nothing. Mm. And I get that it's a style, like, I, I think they've done it like that, so I guess I can kind of apply it to every different yep. setting and make and it look They've gone kind consistent. of a comic booky style, but, like, they haven't committed like to it, it look, enough. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't look comic booky enough. Yeah. Like, they've gone down and, that road, but they haven't gone... They, if they had gone full comic book sort of style, I think it would look better. 
Yeah, but like like Thanos looks weird. Like yeah. he's got weird looking lips. Like some of the characters' faces like look kind of odd. Like some look really spot on, as a, like you know animated yeah. version of who they are. But some just look a bit off. Mm. Also, yeah. I felt kind of uncomfortable watching the third episode, like following Black Widow a lot. I think it's just because of all the. Um, Backlash that's happened lately. <laughs> She's. Have you guys watched it? Black Black Widow. Uh, Black Widow. Yeah. 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 I, I watched it. I, I think it was like a yet. month after it came out. I watched it's... it the day it came out. I uh, well, I think it's because yeah, like I, you know, I had like a month of people being like, "It's fucking shit" and all this stuff, and like by the time I watched it, I was like, "Oh, it's." It's fine. Like, it wasn't shit, but it wasn't great. It was just... It's ju- it's it came just out kind four of years nothing. too late. Yeah, it's exactly what everyone's been saying this yeah. entire time. It's too late if and it doesn't really If it came out in 2016, really it would have been a fantastic Marvel movie for 2016. Yeah. Mm. But it's not... I mean, it was meant to come out last year, so we can assume like you know, it was a 2020 initial release, but COVID pushed it back to earlier this year. Yeah. But yeah. Like, yeah, it came out too. It's not a movie like it should have. Like it should have come out when it's set before Infinity War. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think all the Scar- the um, Scarlett Johansson stuff sort of muddied it a bit more for me because, mm. like, it kind of had nothing going for it. Yeah. And after that, hearing all this shit, I'm just like, ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't really want to support Disney. I'm keen for like Shang Chi. Like that's coming out in like. A week or yeah, something, but movies. we can't oh, see really? it because there's no yeah, yeah there's, there's no, no theaters and there's no uh, yeah there's open. no theaters. It's it's not tracking to make any money, and they put out mo- like trailers for two other movies like last week, uh-huh. like while they're supposed to be like building up hype for this yeah. other one. So I don't know. I feel they're just kind of sweeping under the rug, which is a shame because this looks like especially because it was filmed one. here. It was made yeah. in Australia yes. and. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty much everything. I'd like to see it do well, because it looks like there's something to it, unlike yeah. Eternals, which looks like garbage. Yeah, but the <laughs> issue is, like, it's going to come out globally, and there's no home release for Australia, but we're all mm-hmm. in lockdown, so... Which is, like, which is a shame, because, like, I'd pay for some I would of pay it, for maybe. This. I don't know. See, like, I, I'm sort of... I'm, like, conflicted, because it's Disney, and I don't want to... I'd rather just get it through nefarious circumstances than just like, like support them. But something like, like this, if it came out on Disney Plus as Premier Access, this is probably one that I would pay for. Yeah, because like I want to see yeah. the people in this succeed. Like yeah. especially like the this the the guy that's playing Shang Chi, complete unknown. Like clearly has a lot riding on this. Like, yeah, and like and the, the future whole of the new, character the... in the storylines of the you know Marvel universe, like you want to see this stuff go well and get bigger and have sequels and yeah. expand into well, apparently, else. apparently China doesn't want Shang Chi at all. Like they, they don't give a fuck. And wow. weirdly, this like movie was kind of made for them. But like I read like reports like. Like, because I know the like Chinese is just like super blunt with their like critiques yes. of films, and they just they were just like, "No, this guy looks weird. Uh, we don't like him as a lead," and that's it. Mm. That's just and now it's just not getting a massive release in China because of that. No. It's like, nah. 
This this isn't our guy, (laughs) which is rough. Very. Um, Have you heard anything else, Nick? No, not really. Kat? Um, Well, I have been watching Harry Potter. We're up to the last movie, which we're going to watch tonight. Wow, Um, speed. And since we last recorded, I haven't started anything new. But I was talking to Jacob about this earlier. Last night I was bored and so I went onto Wikipedia and was just looking up random Wikipedia pages um, and I wrote down five of my favourites. Nick, I thought I'd tell you about these because I'd already told Jacob. Mm-hmm. So the first one is ex- <laughs> the first one is extreme ironing in which you take an ironing board to extreme locations and iron clothes. Um the second is Inventors Killed by Their Own Inventions, which is hilarious, and everyone should like read the, the Wikipedia page. Like the Segway guy? Yeah. 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 Well, there's this guy that um, tried to jump off the Eiffel Tower in this, like, contraption that would make you fly, and he just plummeted to his death. <laughs> um, it was kind of sad. That's a long way out, too. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Um, the page about Mary Toft. Um, so in nine, uh, sorry, seventeen twenty-six, she tricked doctors into believing she gave birth to rabbits. Um, okay. No you reaction to that, Nick. That? That's do you so not have fun. A, do you not I, have a reaction to a woman convincing I, I, doctors she gave birth of... to rabbits? I, I, I thought that was funny. I was waiting for a reaction from Jacob. I've too, already heard I it. Jacob's already heard I'm them. already aware of all you. of these. Right, right. <laughs> I was just looking um, at your camera. I was looking at your little square, and I was like, "Oh, he seems very chill about that." I was looking at you, going, "Is he going to say something?" <laughs> so, so no comment on the um, giving birth to rabbits. Then that's fine. Mm. Um, that's fine. That's fine. Um, the buttered cat paradox. Have you heard of this? So oh, you know, solves, cats always land on levitation. their feet. Uh, yeah, cats always land on their feet. Them. Toast always yeah. lands butter side down. If you put a buttered piece of toast on a cat, yeah. it can't ever <laughs> land. Um, and then <laughs> and then the Waffle House Index, which is used by um, American, well, America to evaluate the, um, evaluate how severe disasters are, be- depending on whether Waffle Houses are open or not. Because they have really good protocols for um, disasters like tornadoes and floods and stuff. And if they're shut, huh. then you know shit's really bad. <laughs> um, and yeah. Go. So I highly recommend just perusing Wikipedia and seeing what you come across because you never know. You might learn something. Huh. Yeah. Like how to trick doctors into believing you gave birth to rabbits. How'd she do that? Um, what year was it? I remember. Oh, 1726. Well, yeah, 1726, mate. Come on. Oh, right. Oh, so this wasn't like it wasn't a... like last year. <laughs> it's not right. a medical miracle. <laughs> People were stupid. Yeah. I've also just been reading... Um, I'm up to Prisoner of Azkaban, so I'm reading nice. Harry Potter as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that's what I've been consuming this week. Decent. Well, um, Jacob, I watched a documentary... Because I watched an episode of What If, and then I was like, huh, I wonder what else is on Disney Plus at the moment, because Mm -hmm. I don't really go on there that much. And I found a thing that was called Shark Beach with Chris Hemsworth. It's a National Geographic documentary. 
and it starts off with Chris Hemsworth and Mick Faming just going for a surf, talking about sharks, and it's just Chris Hemsworth being Chris Hemsworth at a beach in Byron Bay, meeting with shark experts, and then he sticks a um, cotton wool swab stick up a shark's rectum to get some um, information about what it's been eating. So it was a really good documentary, and then I watched Chris Hemsworth anally assault a shark, and I was like, this is taking a turn. But it's quite funny because you know how Chris Hemsworth um... sort of like how his personality is. Yeah. He pretty much apologises to the shark before he does it, and it's it's just really funny. <laughs> oh, that's nice. But yeah, I do recommend okay, if you're on Disney Plus to watch Shark that. Beach with Chris Hemsworth. It's very interesting, except for that bit's a bit weird. And I also, I've been reading another comic. This is, you know, my weekly comic recommendation. Um, it's called Doctor Who, Prisoners of Time. It's from the 50th anniversary, which is almost 10 years ago now, but 2013 in which a – I'll just read the back. When a mysterious figure from the Doctor's past abducts his companions and freezes them outside of time, only a combination of all of the Doctor's past inca- incarnations will be able to rescue them and safeguard the future. So essentially a character from the ninth Doctor's one season comes back and tries to wreak havoc on the Doctor's life by stealing every single one of his companions out of the timeline – and then, yeah, it's really good so far. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I've written a lot of comics lately because lockdown's just, you know, really boring. Getting back into so comics fair. and reading stuff I haven't read before. So that that that's me this week because Nick kind of touched so on fair. everything else that I was watching and excited for. So, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. It's nice to share that. <laughs> um, otherwise, where can people reach us, Kat? Um, you can email us at watchitagainpodcast no, at gmail.com. That's wrong. Watch it again pod. Watch it again. Watch it again pod at, at gmail.com. gmail.com. <laughs> you need to change that. It's not okay. It's not okay. Um, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at watch it again podcast. Um, send us a message, leave us a review wherever you're listening um, to this on. We'll read them out because, you know, we have a lot of spare time, so we're going to read any review you send us and probably reply um, and leave us five stars because that's really the only rating you should be giving us. Yeah, come on. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's it. Yep. Otherwise, we'll be back next week with Kat. It's my turn. Yeah, with a movie that she has chosen. Um, <laughs> so we will see you guys then. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. As always, I'm Jacob. I'm Kat. I'm Nick. Bye. 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 Um...